This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker, your morning shot of political information, inspiration and perspiration. I'm Andrew Harrison. Today, there have been dramatic developments in the war in Ukraine over the past couple of months. Firstly, the stunning counteroffensive from Ukrainian forces, which drove Russians back in a huge area of southwestern Ukraine, inflicting what was described as Russia's worst military humiliation since the Second World War. Then, a shocking escalation of the war, with Putin ordering direct drone attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure and declaring martial law in four occupied Ukrainian provinces. At the time of recording, regions including Kiev, Dnipro and Sumy have been badly hit, with thousands of towns left without electricity as winter approaches. Ukrainians are being advised to charge everything and stock up on blankets and warm clothes. Behind it all, the constant threat is that as the war worsens for Russia, Putin might well use a battlefield nuclear weapon or worse. Behind all these headlines, it is the courage of your ordinary Ukrainian people that's constantly amazed the world, and we wanted to catch up on what it's like for Ukrainians, how they think the war is going, and their hopes for victory. Olga Tokaryuk is a Ukrainian journalist and disinformation researcher who writes for Time. She appears on Monocle 24. She's recently moved from Kiev to Oxford, where she's now a fellow at the Reuters Institute. The tweet pinned to her Twitter page says, Ukraine will fight and Ukraine will win. Hello, Olga. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Andrea. Thank you for having me. The most important question, we're, we're eight months into the war now. As a former Kiev resident until, what is about a month ago, I think, what is your sense of how the war is going now? It's been very tough, eight months. While in the beginning, you know, I think maybe people were caught by surprise by the sheer brutality of Russian attack. Now I think nobody in Ukraine is surprised. And people somehow learned to live under this constant threat. And they, in a way, accept that even, you know, the fact that their life lives might be ended from one moment to another. So they are also trying to kind of live their lives to the fullest. But one thing that hasn't changed, I think, in this eight months is the belief, the very firm belief of majority of Ukrainians that they will win this war. They don't know when it will happen, what will be the price of this victory. But people in Ukraine are still very determined to do everything they can in order to, to win this war. And we are seeing that actually on the battlefield that the Ukrainian army is winning, it managed to recapture territories in uh, the north of Ukraine. It drove away Russians from uh, Kyiv and Chernihiv regions in uh, in spring and during the summer. Uh, Ukrainians liberated also parts of uh, Kharkiv, Kherson region with an impressive counteroffensive in September. And currently, uh, um, they are continuing to advance in the south of Ukraine in Kherson region. 
But as a response, of course, Russia uses terror tactics against civilians. Russia is losing on the battlefield. It's losing to the Ukrainian armed forces, but it continues to terrorize civilians to launch missiles and most recently the kamikaze drones that it receives from Iran in order to break uh, this Ukrainian resistance and in order to, as the winter approaches, also to deprive people of electricity, of heating, to break their spirits and to somehow force Ukraine to surrender. But I think it is very unlikely. Where in Kyiv did you live and how close did the war come to you personally before you came to England? I lived in Kyiv for 20 years before February. And in fact, it was in February that I left Kyiv and I moved to the western part of Ukraine to stay with my family there. I have a seven-year-old daughter. Well, she was six when the full-scale invasion started. And of course, I had to you know, take care of her safety. And this is why I moved to the western part of Ukraine, because... I thought it would be safer. And, and in fact, it was. Although even in Western Ukraine, it, it, it's not a completely safe place because uh, there were missile attacks nearby and uh, there were constant air raid uh, sirens. And of course, this presence of war was still very palpable, also with a huge influx of internally displaced people who at some point we hosted them in our house. We had 13 people in one house in the first months of war because we were given shelter to uh, people fleeing from other parts of Ukraine. You feel this war in whatever part of Ukraine you are in, you know. And, and then, of course, during the summer as a journalist, I visited. I went to Kyiv, I went to, to Bucha, I went to Chernihiv. So I saw the destruction with my own eyes. I saw also the reconstruction and the, uh, the way the people, how they are trying to return to their normal lives. And it is, in fact, very painful to see, again, Kyiv and uh, other parts of Ukraine that were relatively calm during the summer months living in constant terror. Again, this Russian missile and drone attacks on Kyiv. You know, a lot of my friends, especially with children who left Kyiv for um, several months, they moved to the western part of the country or they moved abroad. Then many of them returned to Kyiv hoping that it would be safer. But now, uh, in this past uh, several weeks, they are again facing this very difficult choice as the winter approaches and as Russian attacks on Ukraine's uh, critical infrastructure intensify, they are again facing this very uh, difficult choice. What, what should they do? Should they again uh, leave their homes? Should they again move somewhere? Should they again take their children to safety? Because it's becoming really unbearable to live under this constant threat also of the kamikaze drones attack that are very difficult to predict and they're catching people by surprise. As you say, Putin is finding it very hard to do anything against the Ukrainian military. So he's shifted his tactics towards civilians and attacks on civilian infrastructure. This surely uh, constitutes war crimes. Yes, absolutely. These are violations of Geneva Conventions and Russia is deliberately and clearly uh, attacking civilian targets and is uh, uh, killing civilians. It's uh, also torturing civilians on the occupied territories. We, we are seeing there are mass graves discovered in every settlement that has been under Russian occupation but was subsequently liberated by the Ukrainian army. So uh, first in Bucha, then in, uh, in Izum, in Kharkiv region, in, in other parts of the country that have been under Russian occupation. So there is a systematic campaign of, of terror against uh, the civilian population, not just terror with weapons, with missiles and drones, but also terror on a much larger scale on the territories that are under Russian occupation, and especially in southern Ukraine, where Russian occupiers have been present for eight months already. We keep hearing genuinely shocking stories, even eight months into the war, that could still amaze. I mean, there was a BBC report yesterday which uh, interviewed a person in Kherson talking about his phone, saying you have to make sure that there are no incriminating photos even in your in your deleted folder. Oppression goes down to that level. Yes, absolutely, because, uh, well, Russians have created so-called filtration camps 
in the um, occupied territories in southern and in eastern Ukraine and people who want to leave those territories, they have to go through this so-called filtration process when all their belongings are checked, their phones are seized and their phones are checked, even the deleted uh, items folders and, and the phones are connected to the laptop. So the, the, the Russian soldiers, they are trying to restore also the files that were deleted to check what was on them. And they might find uh, as incriminating whatever picture they decide. So so it, it does not necessarily have to be, I don't know, a Ukrainian flag there or something that it clearly supports Ukrainian Ukrainian army. There can be like just really various reasons or just no reason for a person to be detained, to be sent into a detention center from this filtration camp. We know that people are disappearing. They Those who do not pass this filtration procedure, they are disappearing. Then uh, they are very often discovered dead in mass graves in those territories that have been under occupation, very often these people just disappear without trace and no one knows what happened to them. And from Kherson, one of the most recent news is that Russians kidnapped and killed a musician, a director of philharmonics in, in Kherson. Cultural figures, uh, people who refused to collaborate with Russians because allegedly he refused to stage some performances that, that would glorify Russia. So they, they kidnapped and they executed this person. So even for, for this thing, uh, you know, people can, can be... Can be killed, not just because they fight for Ukraine, they are in the Ukrainian army, or they sympathize with the army, or they are passing information to the Ukrainian army or the government. We could well be on the verge of the battle to liberate Kherson. The Russians are claiming that the residents are evacuating. Ukrainian authorities say this is a setup for a, a possible stage provocation on Russia's behalf. Tell us about the significance of Kherson. What should we be looking for in, in Kherson? Well, Kherson has been under Russian occupation since uh, February. It's a major city in southern Ukraine connecting uh, the rest of Ukraine to the occupied Crimea. And Kherson uh, region also is one of the most fertile regions of Ukraine. So a lot of agriculture cultural produce uh, has been grown there historically, like the landmark uh, of Kherson region is a watermelon, there is even a monument to the watermelon. This is just to give you an idea of how important this region is also from the point of view of the Ukrainian economy, which relies on the uh, on, on agriculture and agricultural experts. In the course of this eight months, uh, uh, we've heard multiple reports of uh, large-scale repressions in, in Kherson and in Kherson regions about kidnappings of local uh, heads of uh, cities and villages, uh, local activists, local politicians, and also teachers, professors, uh, intelligentsia. Uh, very often these people just go, they just disappear without trace, or they are later discovered, executed. Uh, so mass scale human rights violations in Kherson. But uh, the position from the military point of view, the position of Russians in Kherson has been becoming weaker and weaker in the course of uh, the recent months, especially after Ukraine uh, received long-range uh, artillery from the United States and other uh, Western partners, such as HIMARS systems that have been able to destroy Russian positions and Russian military bases in Kherson region. So there have been some Ukrainian advances already, like Ukrainians were approaching the city of Kherson. And Kherson is separated by the river Dnipro, which is the biggest, largest river in Ukraine. It also runs through Kyiv and it goes uh, south and uh, then it reaches the Black Sea. So there are two banks, uh, left and right bank of Kherson. And currently Russians are uh, retreating from from the left bank to to the right bank, and they are also deporting these people, uh, the residents of Kherson, because they call it evacuation, but in fact it's a deportation because these people are deported to another bank bank of the river. But some of them are being also sent to Russia. 
So what we can expect in Kherson is that, yes, Russians are retreating, but they are taking the civilians back and most likely they will use uh, the civilians as a shield in order to prevent the attacks of the Ukrainian army or the destruction of Russian actually military, which would most likely be the case if they were just retreating on their own. And there are also worrying reports that Russians might uh, blow up the dam on on the Dnipro River in, in Kahovka, which is a town uh, in Kherson region, and then try to accuse Ukrainian uh, military of doing that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. How real is the fear amongst Ukrainians that Putin might actually use a nuclear weapon? Majority of Ukrainians uh, think it is not very likely. It looks like more as a blackmail tactics, and this tactics is partially efficient with some people in in other countries, in some Western countries. In fact, Putin will not gain much from using a nuclear weapon in Ukraine because this will not change the situation on the battlefield from the military point of view. It doesn't bring them any benefits. And in fact, he might lose the support of countries which were previously quite reluctant to condemn Russia, even though they didn't express maybe clearly their support, but they were reluctant to condemn Russia's actions in Ukraine, such as China and India. So it will be very risky, actually, for Putin to use the the nuclear weapon because the losses uh, from it would be more significant than the gains. People in Ukraine and the government in general, I think, do not see it as very likely. They see it as another Russian blackmail technique, but it is working with the part of the public in the West, with some of even the influential people. We've probably all seen the Elon Musk's tweets, uh, who seems to be really taking it too seriously and who pretends to be a geopolitics expert, which he isn't. Um, So, yeah, I agree with the point that this is a a blackmail tactics. This is an intimidation technique and we shouldn't buy it. And in fact, appeasing the aggressor and giving in increases the risk of the nuclear standoff, not decreases it. I want to ask you about how Ukrainians feel about the way the rest of the world is supporting them or perhaps not supporting them. There was a fear early in the war that it would eventually fall out of the headlines, that perhaps the rest of the world would move on. That seems not to have happened. I wanted to ask you, do, do Ukrainians feel fully supported by the rest of the world? Well, I think it's very difficult to generalise the rest of the world, mm. right? Because as I said, there are countries who are, well, obviously supporting Ukraine more than others. And first of all, of course, the US, UK, the European Union and uh, the wider Western world world, Australia as well. And then there are countries which have significant global weight, such as China and India, who are, or Turkey, whose position is very ambiguous, to say the least. I think there is an appreciation and gratitude for the support and the assistance that is coming from the Western countries. Of course, there is a huge gratitude to the UK and also because the UK, as we know, is not just providing military assistance and financial assistance to Ukraine. The UK is also training Ukrainian military and there were reports recently in the Ukrainian media about these courses for Ukrainian soldiers that are being conducted in the UK. And finally, one of those articles was entitled Oxford for Ukrainian Military and 
know, me sitting here in Oxford, <laughs> I was like laughing at it. But that's how the Ukrainian media, you know, tell these stories. And that's how they, they, the headlines that they, they use somehow to make it like relatable and kind of highlight the importance and also the quality of the Australians for, for the Ukrainian soldiers, for the Ukrainian military. So there is, of course, you know, uh, knowledge about that, appreciation, gratitude, and, you know, that songs have been made about former UK <laughs> prime minister in Ukraine <laughs> and um in general, there is a lot, a lot of support, of course, and a lot of gratitude to the assistance coming from from the UK and other Western countries. However, yes, I think uh, there is also the realization that some countries could be doing more than they have done, and this applies in particular to Germany and France, which promised a lot but delivered much less. Well, finally, we are seeing some air defense systems coming from Germany. So hopefully... Um, this country started slowly, but uh, eventually they they will provide more support. But there is, of course, this concern also that as the winter approaches and there is a cost of living crisis in uh, in the UK and in other countries, that Ukraine might fall uh, fall off the agenda, and that populations in Ukraine's uh, uh, partner countries will be more concerned about their own immediate well-being. So far, it hasn't happened. Hopefully, it won't happen. But there is, of course, this risk, and we'll be we should be watching very closely also the U.S. midterm elections. What happens then? Who will be the people who will come to power? How many Republicans who are now questioning uh, the aid to Ukraine will be there in the Congress, and how vocal they will be, and will they be able to impact the the current position of support to Ukraine? Yeah, the House leader, Kevin McCarthy, recently said, I think people are going to be sitting in a recession and they're not going to write a blank check to Ukraine, which is quite a, a worrying thing to hear. Exactly. This news was picked up in Ukraine. Yes, it was picked up by the Ukrainian media. And of course, like people, while they still very much like hope and trust and believe that the US will continue supporting Ukraine, that there is, of course, like this worrying anxiety that it might be changing. However, what will not change is the resistance of Ukrainians and Ukrainians know that they have, first of all, to rely on themselves. That's what they've been doing. Of course, the assistance, the military assistance that is coming is, is very important. It's crucial. It's making a huge difference on the battlefield. But without the resolve of the Ukrainian armed forces and of the Ukrainian society that is supporting the armed forces, continuing to donate money, continuing you know, to provide them with vehicles or other things and sending it to the battlefield. So without this uh, support, any assistance that is coming uh, from the West would be meaningless. You're an expert in disinformation. It's one of the main areas that, that you study. And anyone who spends any time on social media finds themselves in an absolute hall of mirrors on Ukraine where you're surrounded by incredibly dodgy information. Last week, we were being told that Ukraine's army chief, Valery Zaluzhny, was wearing a swastika bracelet. This was swiftly debunked, but still went all over social media. I wanted to ask you, how has the character of disinformation changed as the war has worsened for Putin? Are we seeing Russians using different methods? At the very beginning of the war, it was very clear that Russian propaganda and disinformation was not succeeding to persuade uh, people, especially in the Western countries. So they focused, they concentrated their efforts uh, more on the global south, on countries such as uh, such as India, such as South Africa, other African countries, Latin America. There were some disinformation research projects implemented that highlighted uh, these narratives and how strong they were pushed by 
suspicious inauthentic accounts on social media in in these parts of the world with uh, India, Brazil, South Africa. But as uh, the war drags on and uh, there are also less journalists present on the ground, there are still journalists, there are still international reporters who are covering the war, but not as many as in the first months of war. These information operators uh, start to, to be more active also in trying to shift the narrative in the Western countries, focusing more on the their immediate, uh, the immediate concerns of their own populations. So like blaming Ukraine, for example, for the uh, rising prices or the energy prices or trying to blame Ukraine for the global food crisis or pushing the narrative that uh, the war should be stopped at any cost uh, now immediately and that Ukraine has to make uh, painful concessions because that's the only way to to end the war. So I think we should be like very conscious of where this narrative is coming from and whom whom they benefit. Because, you know, what they are doing, they are not telling outright lies or fakes. They are telling things that are that have some like grain of truth, but then they completely distort the uh, cause and effect. When they hear things that might seem like, well, quite convincing and quite logical, but then if you go inside, you see that how twisted that logic is and how, how manipulative that is. Just finally then, what is the most important thing that we in the rest of Europe are getting wrong about the Ukraine war? What's the most serious misconception that we have? Well, I think now in in eight months, a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings of Ukraine have been already debunked. I think those especially like who are, who are interested, who are paying attention, they realize that maybe a lot of their own ideas and impressions about Ukraine have been have been false. For example, the fact that how much Ukraine has changed in the past eight years between 2014 and 2022, uh, how much stronger Ukrainian identity has become, that Ukrainian identity does not equal ethno-linguistic identity meaning that you don't have to be an ethnic Ukrainian or speak Ukrainian language in order to feel loyalty to Ukraine, that Ukrainian identity is mostly about values, about the commitment to human rights, to democracy, to freedom. This is what is shaping Ukrainian identity. So I think people are starting to to kind of like realize that and realize that Ukraine is a democracy, that Ukraine is fighting for freedom, for, for human rights, for the uh, possibility to uh, for the countries to make their own sovereign decisions without any like interference from from the outside world what is still um, people are getting wrong i think people still like because this is another question that is often asked and it's still asked like so will it break the ukrainian spirit will like this recent escalation of russia make ukrainians surrender or you know change their mind i think there has been abundant proof that no amount of Russian escalation will break the Ukrainian spirit or will break Ukrainian resolve and, you know, their Ukrainian resistance because it only makes people more angry. It only makes people more charged. And this is the war for survival. It's it's as simple as that. Ukrainians cannot just like surrender or compromise because they, they know what will happen next, that, you know, they will be just exterminated and the Ukrainian identity will be annihilated. It's a genocidal war. It's not just a war. It's really a genocide. One thing that should be like clear and of which I have 100% confidence is that Ukrainian spirit will not be broken, that Ukraine will continue fighting and resisting. The variable here is how long the people in, in the West and democracies will, will continue supporting Ukraine and whether they are ready to stand with Ukraine until the end, until the victory. Olga Tokariak, thank you so much for joining us. That's been really illuminating and actually quite inspiring, I think. you. So I, I think so. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. 
Listeners, we hope you found this useful. Uh, We will be returning to the Ukraine war as often as necessary on the bunker. But please do let us know what you want to know and we'll try and find the right people to talk to for you. If you want to help us pay for producers, editors and of course journalists to keep making these podcasts, we will be hugely grateful for your support on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out about early ad-free episodes, bunker merchandise and much more. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition and we'll see you then. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.